Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today's episode is brought to you by Uni, the company known for bringing portable pizza ovens to backyards all over the world. It used to be that to get an authentic Neapolitan-style pie, you either had to wait in line at a wood-fire pizzeria or get on a plane to Naples. But Uni changed all that. Founded in 2012, the company launched the world's first portable pizza oven that can heat up to 950 degrees Fahrenheit, the searing temperature needed to get a bubbly, thin-crust Neapolitan pizza. Over the years, Uni pizza ovens have continued to define the category with an innovative range of ovens with different fuel options, wood, charcoal, and gas, to suit the needs of every outdoor cook. The latest model, the super versatile Unikaru 16 multi-fuel oven, makes it so that you can choose between these three fuel options, creating 16-inch pizzas for those ready to take on wood fire, gas-powered, or charcoal-fueled cooking with ease. The latest addition to the Uni Pizza Oven's family builds on eight years of design and engineering experience and is the only pizza oven certified by the AVPN, the revered Italian industry body that is charged with protecting the craft of making true Neapolitan pizza worldwide. Learn more at uni.com backslash modernist podcast. That's O-O-N-I dot com backslash modernist podcast. Welcome to the Modernist Pizza Podcast. This is episode one, the myth of margarita and the transmutation of pizza history. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. I have my own history with pizza. Aside from traveling the world in search for the classics and next great pie, I humbly began my culinary career in high school, working the cash register at Capriccio in the small suburban town of Croton Hudson, New York. It was my after-school job, my summer gig. I even occasionally came back from college to pick up shifts all the while romantically thinking I was an aspiring pizzaiolo. Pizza, for many of us, is sentimental. Your favorite slice is tied to a fond memory of your favorite pizza joint. What's your local? Go ahead. Say it aloud now. Whether it's pizza night with the family, waiting for that delivery to arrive, or making your own at home. Pizza is personal. 
It's hard to separate pizza from our daily lives. Its ubiquity is almost an expectation of it always being there for us. Wherever you are, there should be pizza, right? Well, isn't there? Along with Nathan Mirvold, founder of Modernist Cuisine, and its head chef, Francisco Magoya, who together co-authored Modernist Pizza, a 1,700-page book about the art, history, and science of pizza, will chew over the world's most popular food with the people who have been part of its storied past and are shaping its yet-to-be-told future. Each slice of this series examines a different piece of pizza, from its origins to evolution, deep dives into flour, sauce, and cheese, as well as its proliferation of regional styles and its boundless global influence. From Naples to New York City, South America to Japan, pop-ups to frozen mail-order pies, listen in as we talk to experts, enthusiasts, and the pizza elite who have put this humble pizza pie on the map. Now here's the stretch. Imagine you never had pizza. I know. It's hard to believe because of how omnipresent and far-reaching it's become, but there was once a point in our lives when pizza didn't exist. Do you remember your first bite? That chewy or crispy, thin or thick crust, that tangy, fresh or sweet, slow-cooked tomato sauce, and the stretch of warm cheese between your teeth, scorching that memory on your soft upper palate. Don't forget that flurry of grated Parmesan and the perfume of freshly picked basil to finish it off. None of this may have ever happened. This could all be a charade and pizza as we know it could not be real. Though there's a plaque at Pizzeria Brandy in Naples, Italy, there's indefinite evidence that in 1889, Raffaele Esposito truly constructed a pizza for the Queen of Italy, Margarita of Savoy, the namesake of the margarita pie in question. But before we jump to conclusions, we must understand what pizza really is. With pizza, it's one of those things that when you see it, you know that it's pizza. But if you try to define it by saying, okay, pizza is a baked dough with sauce and cheese. Yes, but also no, because we've had pizza without sauce. And so is that a flatbread? <laughs> so it is very difficult to define pizza, but when you see it, you know it's pizza. You know, pizza is a very happy mixture of just baked bread with melted cheese and other little delicious bits. It really strikes a whole lot of chords in terms of stuff that makes humans hungry. If only it were as easy to explain as it is to enjoy. That was Francisco and Nathan, respectively. They spent the past handful of years contemplating the transformation of pizza and all its iterations, and why it is so worth so much of our attention. After writing a 2,500-page book about bread, pizza was the only next logical step. Pizza is made with a dough, right? But I think that where you see the greatest distinction is that you have to flatten it intentionally. And you have to put stuff on top of it, and you have to bake it in a particular oven, at least what is considered to be the first pizza, which is Neapolitan pizza. I mean, if you look at a loaf of bread, and you look at a Neapolitan pizza, I think you would see more things that are different than similar between both of them. And so, yeah, I mean, definitely the origin of pizza as we know it today is in Italy. It's food that is what was meant for very poor people. And so for this reason, it's not heavily documented. It's, it's a food that was of the masses. The first trace that we can identify 
as somebody mentioning pizza as we know it today was in a book from 1799. It's described as a dough with tomato sauce and cheese. So why did it take so long? I think, you know, part of it too was Italians embracing tomatoes, right? I mean, I think that tomatoes have been around forever, right? They first made it to Europe after the 1500s. It took a long time for tomatoes to be embraced as actual food. There were people that were scared of tomatoes, you know, the whole nightshade uh, interpretation of, of tomatoes as being poisonous for the longest time. Tomatoes were used just as decorative plants. And it took, I guess, maybe a very hungry person to say, okay, let's eat this and see what happens. And so, you know, can we even think today about Italian cuisine without tomatoes? I mean, it's, it's almost unfathomable. But there was a point where it wasn't part of the culinary landscape there. Well, that explains the start of pizza sauce, but what about the toppings? If you take a functional description of pizza, you'd say it's a flat bread that has toppings on it. Now, that definition fits lots of things throughout the history of Earth. Before we made bread in ovens, we made flatbreads. So every culture around the world that has a bread has a kind of a flatbread. Now, Flatbreads in one part of the world are different than the other part, and it's one of the great schisms in the history of, of breads. And that is that in East Asia, in India certainly, but starting as far west as Iran, they bake their flatbreads by slapping them to the roof of their ovens. Whereas around the Mediterranean and in Europe, when they started baking bread, they put their flatbreads on the floor of the oven. And so the difference between a pita bread that you might get in, say, Egypt or Turkey, uh, Greece, and a non bread you'd get in India is that the pita is a flatbread baked on the floor and the other one's baked on the ceiling. Now, here's the deal when you slap your breads up to the ceiling, you can do some great things. I, I love naan, but you can't put toppings on them. They fall off. One whole part of the world was sort of destined to not have a flatbread you could put toppings on. Another big chunk of the world never put their flatbreads in an oven. So, for example, in Mexico, a tortilla was baked originally on a round flat stone, later on flat skillets or upside down skillets, it never had the opportunity to be in an oven, so that's also not going to be something you put toppings on. For us, we decided that pizza, as we know it today, is a culinary phenomenon that has a very specific history. So is that it? Pizza's predilection to the proverbial pizza oven defines whether or not toppings can, well, stay on? In the Alsace, which has variously been parts of France and Germany, uh, and also associated parts of Germany, there's something called Flammkuchen. You know, the number of people who call out to have a Flammkuchen delivered tonight is going to be approximately zero on Earth, where like a billion pizzas will be ordered. It, there's no contest. Even though Flammkuchen can be delicious, and Flammkuchen can be close enough to a modern style of pizza that you could say, yeah, why don't we call it pizza? For those of you who have had tart flambe, the anonymous flamkuchen, it's a fanciful flatbread covered in creme fraiche, aka cheese, with thinly sliced onions and tiny chunks of lardones, aka toppings, 
So, why isn't it called a pizza? Is Flammkuchen just the German word for pizza? Because don't they have a word for everything? I looked it up. It isn't. The German word for pizza is pizza. All around the Mediterranean, they have a word for flatbread. And it's something like pita. In fact, it's exactly pita in Greek and in Turkish. It might be pronounced pita in some places. Well, in Italy, it was pita, sometimes with two T's, sometimes with two Z's, pizza. And so from a word perspective, pizza was a generic word in Italian for a flatbread. And this screws up a lot of people because they say, oh, so anything in Italy called pizza must be a pizza. In fact, we actually say no. Being called a pizza is one attribute, but that doesn't mean you're actually related to what we have as pizza today. And the great example of that is that there was a the first great Italian cookbook, the opera of Bartolomo uh, Scappi, was written in the 1500s, and it has multiple recipes for things it calls pizza, including a pizza uh, napolitana, and they're all thin, flat, dessert tarts. They have absolutely nothing to do with pizza today. The phenomenon we currently call pizza started as a kind of a flatbread, in the poorer parts of Naples in the very late 1700s. We know this because a census in, I think, 1790 or 91, a census of Naples listed a couple of people as pizzolos, but only a few. Through the 19th century, that number grew, and we were, for the book, we did a lot of historical research. We traced the evolution of this flatbread in this one part of Naples. You know, Italy is a fascinating place from a culinary perspective because the concept of Italian cuisine is something that only makes sense outside Italy. Now, what does Nathan mean by that? Italian cuisine isn't a monolith. It's regional, and though pizza travel throughout the country, the canon of what we think of as Italian pizza seems to come from Naples. Antonio Matozzi, a retired professor, had originally planned to research his family's legacy in pizza for a book, before realizing how ingrained pizza's past was to that of politics, the economy, and sociology, becoming bigger than just the Matozzi's. Inventing the pizzeria, the history of pizza making in Naples, may have started as a family tree but it planted a seed to explore one of the most widely exported edible products in the world. Exaggerated fables aside, this book's primary motive is to demarginalize the role of pizza maker, who are only now finding success through their descendants. Zachary Nowak, a lecturer at Harvard University and director of the Umbra Institute in Perugia, Italy, specializes in Italian food studies and translated Professor Matozzi's book to English while writing an article of his own, Folklore, Fake Lore, History, The Origins of the Pizza Margarita. In that, he challenges the perception of pizza from an insider-out perspective. Pizza is still around, not because it's exactly like it was in 1880. Sure, it's still dough with stuff on top made in an oven, okay, but uh, it's, it's a very different meal today, and it's different 
but that's allowed it to, to survive and become a traditional Italian food. I mean, even in the introduction of this paper, you say that this is a project about Italian, quote unquote, identity. Uh, is pizza still Italian? No, it's not. And I don't think it ever was, in a sense, because the idea that you would take a, a flat piece of bread and put some stuff on it and cook it in an oven, it doesn't take uh, people in Naples to figure that out. I mean, their version of it becomes the most popular in the world, but a flat bread with stuff on top cooked in an oven is not like a radical new invention. But even if it was sort of originally Italian, right? Were the tomatoes originally Italian? No, there were no tomatoes in Italy until at least 1493, probably early 1500s, and nobody ate them for, for a while longer. They're sort of a botanical curiosity. So, you know, the pizza can't come together without stuff from, um, from other places. Even the, the wheat that's used to make pizzas comes, you know, several millennia beforehand from, you know, from the Middle East. So, I don't know. I think pizza is like a lot of other foods. It's a lot of different ingredients on different trajectories and they sort of like all come together and bam, you got this new thing. Even if pizza at some point was totally Italian, it stopped being totally Italian in the 1950s and it went global. And I think it went global mostly because of the industrial food production chain in the US and refrigeration, especially freezing and all kinds of sophisticated modern marketing. And also because it tastes damn good and it's really easy to make. So let's reframe this conversation. Is pizza even Italian anymore? Or has this global phenomenon pervaded the world over? But what about the OG, the Marg? Is that ever really Italian anyways? The Piedmontese king and queen, who have become the Italian king and queen, go down to Naples on a state visit. And the, the myth goes that Margarita, who is sort of bored with the highfalutin French food of the court, She's more a, a queen of the people. She wants to eat what the people eat. And so she does take out, sort of. She summons Raffaele Esposito, who's the, supposedly the most famous pizzaiolo, pizza maker in Naples. And he comes up to the Capodimonte Palace, which had, had been the palace of the Bourbon Kings and is now sort of the residence of the Italian kings when they're in Naples. So he goes up to the the palace and accounts vary as they often do in these stories. But the one that we can sort of recount is that he makes her three pizzas in the ovens at Capo di Monte. One has anchovies. That pizza is not pleasing to the queen. She doesn't like that one. Another one has a lot of garlic on it. And garlic in Italy at that point is called the spice of the poor. And so even as democratic as Margarita is, she's, she's not up to eating a whole bunch of garlic. But the third pizza has tomato sauce and mozzarella cheese and a little sprig of basil in the middle. And that one the queen really likes. And so Rafael Esposito names it after her, Pizza Margarita after the queen. And she later has her, her chamberlain send uh, like a thank you note, a royal thank you note to Rafael Esposito and his descendants still have it up on the wall. It's, it's quite faded at this point, but you can still make it out, and the text is available anywhere on the internet. It's a wonderful story. Um, if you think about the chromatic elements of the story, the pizza happen just happens to be red, white, and green, which are the colors of the Italian flag, of course. And once again, when I see a story that, that I would eagerly tell, it makes my bullshit detector go off because it's just too good. It's just demonstrably false. 
in so many of the details. But that still makes it a great story. And, and I can shout to the, um, to the stars that this is false and that's going to get reproduced over and over and over in guidebooks and newspapers because it's such a good story. It's a great story. Because prior to that, I mean, I don't know what the flag of the Kingdom of Two Sicilies looked like, but it was a divided country. So did pizza help unify the nation or at least this myth of pizza? Not really, because it still doesn't leave Naples until probably the early 50s. I mean, I have a friend who's 79 and is a university professor and is an anthropologist. So he's definitely thinking about food. And he said he doesn't remember pizzerias in, in Perugia, which is only halfway up the peninsula until the 1970s. So if pizza is this great unifier, I think now that story circulating maybe is doing something for unification, but I don't think pizza did anything to unify Italy in the 19th century because it didn't leave Naples. It didn't even leave the the walls of the city until probably the, the early 20th century. We're gonna take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsor. That said, I hope you're ordering pizza from your hometown fave or firing up an oven to make a pie for yourself, because I'm sure getting hungry. We'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by Uni, a company known for bringing portable pizza ovens to backyards all over the world. For most people, one of the most frustrating things about making pizza at home is that you can have the best flours, tomatoes, and cheese at hand, and yet you still have to put up with the constraints of a conventional oven. Uni makes it possible to make a true, bubbly, chewy, Neapolitan-style pie at home. For nearly a decade, Uni's portable pizza ovens have been the gold standard for getting that perfectly blistered crust because they're able to heat up to 950 degrees Fahrenheit, doubling the capabilities of the usual home oven. Want that wood fire scent? Well, you can have it. Or the convenience of gas. Or use the same charcoal you use for your grill. Unikaru 16 multi-fuel oven gives you all three fuel options. And because it gets so hot, it's possible to fire out those pizzas in 60 seconds with minimal recharge time. Once your neighbors catch on, you'll be hosting pizza parties in your backyard every week. Learn more at uni.com backslash modernist podcast. That's O-O-N-I.com backslash modernist podcast. Welcome back to the Modernist Pizza Podcast. Lucky for us, pizza found its way past the shadows of Mount Vesuvius and out of Naples. But why did something we now hold so dear and delicious take so long to be exported? Francisco believes it's all about the water. I think a, a big comment to make here is why did all these Italians leave Campania in the, the end of the 1800s? And it had to do with cholera. You know, it's one of those things that is, you know, thanks to cholera, we have pizza all over <laughs> the world. Because of all of these people had to leave Italy by the late 1800s and emigrate to other countries is why we have pizza in the rest of the world. It could have not happened. It could have been a less popular food or could have taken more time. You know, there's so many circumstances that could have affected its popularity. That was actually an alternate name for this podcast, thanks to cholera. For all the talk about how soft water makes the best pizza, if it weren't for bad water, polluted with vibrio bacteria, the way cholera spreads and is contracted, we may have never had pizza the world over. 
It almost feels like all that dehydration, diarrhea, and death was worth it. What was called the Ristoramento, or the restoration of Naples, was about tearing down the worst slums and building a new sewage system so that people weren't basically living in their own sewage, which is what the cause of cholera. Now, that caused a huge amount of the poorest parts of Naples to get torn down. So back then, when you tore down slums to do a, uh, a remodel, they didn't think to provide a place for those people to go. So as a result of both the economic displacements and the displacements from this public works project, a third of the population of Naples left. That was like 2 million people. So it was a huge exodus. And those people went out around the world. They went to the United States, South America. When you take 2 million people from Naples and suddenly throw them overseas, you're going to have a whole bunch of people that had grown up eating pizza. And so pizza was exported from Naples, not as a recipe. It was exported by exporting the people. It was an immigration-based thing. In fact, we had a really hard time finding a recipe for pizza in Italian sooner than about 1920. Um, there were recipes for pizza in English much sooner than there were recipes in Italy. And the reason was, in Italy, there was not much interest apart from the people in Naples. And the people in Naples kind of knew how to do it. By the 1930s, pizza had already made its way across the USA. Tommaso's Pizzeria in San Francisco, formerly Pizzeria Lupo's, was established in 1935. The majority of pizzerias of that era were much earlier, and in the Northwest. Centenarians like Oscunitz in Utica, New York, which looks like it should be pronounced Oscognizo, opened in the 1910s. Pizza expanded into the Midwest with Orsi's in Omaha around 1919, and Wells Brothers in Racine, Wisconsin in the early 20s. But if we are talking about the epicenter of pizza in the new world, there's really only one place to focus on, New York City. Yes, Buenos Aires in Argentina and Sao Paulo in Brazil have their own distinct histories around the beginning of the 20th century, but we'll cover those later this season in our global episode. So for the sake of this argument, let's head to Manhattan and its self-designated city of pizza origin. For those of you who have been to Little Italy, Lombardi's on Spring Street is a long-time tourist destination and one of the few coal-oven pizzas that still exist on the island. Touted as America's first licensed pizzeria in 1905, at 53 and a half Spring Street, it's long been considered the birthplace of the New York pie. Well, we're sorry to stoke the fire here, but there were other pizzaiolos previously operating in New York City, and they all somehow relate back to the fabled Lombardi's. Peter Regis, a pizza historian, refutes the fact that Gennaro Lombardi is even the original owner of this historic site, but rather that pizza in America may have started in another borough. We, we can certainly talk about the earliest pizzerias in the U.S. Um, and the controversy behind Lombardi's, but I'm actually most interested in 42 Union Street in Brooklyn, New York, mainly because I'm recording from my house three blocks away from there. And I had no idea. 
Right. This is 42 Union Street. The neighborhood at that time would have been populated by longshoremen. It used to be a Norwegian community, and it shifted to Italians in about the 1890s. And some of the earliest pizzerias in America were at that spot on Union Street. And this is sort of an interesting thing because it sort of mimics the port culture of Naples. You could sort of see an analogy with the port culture of Red Hook, Brooklyn. And what we have is that the reason why we know 42 Union Street was a pizzeria in 1898 is because it was the first ad that we've been able to find in an Italian-American newspaper. I mean, it's really the first absolutely definitive evidence that we have of a pizzeria in the United States. It was owned and run by a man named Andrea Palumbo, and he came from the province of Naples. You know, at that time, people weren't really recording the historical nature of pizzerias. They weren't taking photographs of the buildings at that time. And so, but for this ad, we really wouldn't have any definitive information of what this man was actually doing. But because of the ad, we can say with 100% confidence that he owned pizzeria at 42 Union Street in 1898. And he probably had it until his death in 1904. Andrea Palumbo isn't a well-known name in pizza, nor is this next one, Filippo Malone. Remember this name, for he forever forged the path of pizza in this country. As luck would have it, Filippo Malone actually had a restaurant right across the street from 42 Union Street. So he had his restaurant at 47 Union Street. And again, the only reason why we know this is because when the boroughs were consolidated in 1898, the main directory started to do commercial directories for all the boroughs. And that was the first year they did a directory for Brooklyn. And so we have Filippo Maloney, 47 Union Street, as a restaurant, which is very exciting because without the context of his life, we would say, okay, so what? He owned the restaurant. Who cares? But when you look at this man's total career and he owns 11 businesses at 11 different locations, six of them very probably were pizzerias. Two of them still survive till today in Lombardi's on Spring Street and John's on Bleecker Street. When an article was published in the New York Sun in 1905, it explained two authentic pizzerias, one on Grand Street and the other on Spring Street. Well, Maloney was actively involved in both of those at that time or shortly there before that time. So it does lend us to believe that his pizzas were very authentic. And the other very interesting thing is that when you look at his social network and his business network, they seem to inspire people from the same hometown as him or a nearby hometown to get into the business at that time. So it's almost like they were customers of his, friends of his, or they worked for him in some way, and they're getting into the business too. Well, of everyone in America who was there at that time, there was no one who was as early as Maloney and as significant as Maloney was in that sense. There probably was someone who had a pizzeria before Maloney. So he probably was not the very, very first. But to me, he's the most influential of the early pizza makers in the United States. See, it might be blasphemous to say, but Regus believes there is no evidence that Lombardi opened the quote unquote first pizzeria in America at 53 and a half Spring Street. The details are in the diction. 
the earliest indication that that was a bakery at 53 Spring Street is that someone took out a bake oven building application in the summer of 1898. The only plausible person who would have done that would have been Philippo Maloney because he's there on the Society Directory in the spring of 1899. So it looks to have happened. Maloney took over the ownership of the bakery at 53 Spring Street, and he's variously described in different directories as a grocer, as a baker, or a delicatessen. The only thing that we know he baked was pizza. And the fact that he's taken out a bake oven that early at that spot shows that it's significant to his business. And we know shortly thereafter, they're making pizzas at that spot. So, you know, it's not 100% certain, but very probably Maloney was the one who started the pizzeria. Then it was bought out by a, a pizza operator who came from Naples in 1901. and it turns into he's actually also taking out a pizzeria ad in an Italian-American newspaper in 1904. And Gennaro Lombardi comes to America the very first time in November of 1904 as a 17-year-old. And on the ad, it's interesting because on the ad, he says he owned a pizzeria in Naples. And it also says something also very intriguing. It gives a short description of the type of pizzas, or at least one of the type of pizzas that he's selling. And he's selling, and it's obviously all in Italian, but he's saying he's selling stuffed pizza. That's stuffed pizza in the very famous pizzeria for New York pizza, which of course is thin crust pizza. How did we have this wrong for so long? Well, let's look at the photo evidence. The only piece of evidence that the Gennaro Lombardi family or their descendants gave was that famous photograph of Gennaro Lombardi in front of the store with Antonio Perro, and on the window it says Gennaro Lombardi proprietor. And it was the key thing to find out when that photo was taken. They had on the photo 05, but it turns out that when you do a really in-depth study of what was going on in that photo, we found the architectural plans. And we can rule out every date after 1912 because that the frontage was significantly altered in the summer of 1912. So we're pretty confident that that photo was taken the fall of 1908. And what's odd about this story is that he has it in 08, but then the next city directory in the spring of 1909 has another man's name, and his name is Francisco Dorico as a pie maker, which is a telltale sign that he was a pizza maker still at that time. And that what's the relationship between Gennaro Lombardi and Francisco Dorico? A little bit complicated, but it was definitely a relationship through marriage of the Dorico family with the Lombardi family. And what turns out to have happened is that Dorico was formerly a baker in Brooklyn in Williamsburg, and Lombardi was in Spring Street. What happened in 08 or 09, shortly thereafter, is that Dorico takes over for Lombardi at the pizzeria on Spring Street, and Lombardi looks to take over the Dorico bakery in Williamsburg. And Gennaro Lombardi has that bakery at least verifiably from 1912, that we can actually say he had it, until 1918, when Gennaro Lombardi comes back to Spring Street 
buys it back from Dorico, and then has it from 1918 till his death in 1958. So it's a little bit of a complicated story. Ordinarily, when you have that buying and the selling of the thing, you think, well, are you sure you're right? We have very good information with draft cards from World War I, directories, birth records that has Dorico uniquely there at Spring Street as the only owner, and Lombardi in Williamsburg. And we have all the owners who were there before Lombardi. So big story is that Lombardi, the story is not true, but the, the true story it looks to be the true story that accords with all the facts that we know is that the story is a lot more intriguing with a lot more people in it. And this earliest guy who's there is probably the most intriguing. And that was Filippo Maloney in 1898. Regus goes on to talk about the transference of pizza from New York to New Jersey with Joe's Tomato Pies in 1910, Papa's Tomato Pies a few years after, both accredited to a family that worked at Lombardi's right before. But what intrigues me most is that of John's of Bleecker Street, Need John's of 175 Sullivan Street. Regus believes that they're doing themselves a disservice in the history of pizza and are rather conservative with their date of establishment. Again, credited to Maloney. They have on their awning, it's, it was established in 1929, but in actuality, Maloney had that place on 175 Sullivan Street, which is the origination of John's at that street. He had that in 1915 as an operating and what we think it was pizzeria at that time. And it may have been even a little bit earlier than that. So the significance of that is John's does not claim this but they are the longest continuous operation of a pizzeria in the United States. <laughs> and that beats Lombardi's, that beats Papa's, that beats Pepe's, it doesn't matter. They are the longest in the United States with the best information that we have. Has anything changed though? I know the cost of a slice has gone up, but is pizza really any different than it was before? If you look at what a slice of New York pizza looks like now. It's looked pretty much the same since its inception, uh, but it's a pizza that was made that way mostly out of convenience. It adapted to what people wanted, which was something that would hold a little bit longer, that could be available by a slice. I mean, these are there are different needs for the pizza than they than you would have in Naples, right? In Naples, it's a smaller pizza. It's individual. You know, originally it wasn't eaten like hot out of the oven. Originally, these pizzas were baked ahead of time and sold in the street. That's a very different version of what we think of at, of Neapolitan pizza today. But pizza adapts to wherever it is. Adapts to wherever it is. That's really the nature and narrative of pizza. It's amenable. It doesn't stray too far from where it came from. Or does it? I think of this every time I walk by Sam's Restaurant on Court Street in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. It's been around since 1930. My wife and I had our baby shower there, and its multi-generational owner, Louie, fed it us with pizza pie after pizza pie. We now have a two-year-old. I hope to bring him in someday, order a margarita pizza, and tell him about how pizza has always been there for us. Thank you to our sponsors, Uni and Custiamo, our guests, Zachary Nowak and Peter Regis, music by Carol Cleveland Sings, Jack Inslee, our engineer, our logo and episode art by Jenny Acosta, and of course, 
modernist cuisine. In the next episode, History of the Pizza World Part 2, we'll survey the modern pizza scene from hazy San Francisco to the beaches of Rockaway, Queens, as well as North Philadelphia's Pizza Pipeline. Many of us will seek out the best mozzarella and be picky about the flour we're using for our dough. But we're kind of on autopilot when it comes to tomatoes for pizza. We grab the closest can of San Marzano's and that's that. But over the last 10 years, learn from Bea Treceugi and her incredible importing company Gustiamo that there's a whole world of tomatoes grown in Italy. First, not all San Marzano's live up to their name. Beatrice and her team source theirs from farmers who actually work in the town of San Marzano, where the volcanic soil makes for sweet, low-acid tomatoes. Gustiamo also brings in two other varieties of tomatoes from southern Italy, Corberino and Pianolo, both of which are permitted in the famed pizzas of Naples. These can completely change the character of a pie. Gustiamo has greatly expanded my pantry when it comes to Italian ingredients. Not just tomatoes, 23 years, the Bronx-based company has been importing regional specialties like bronze-cut slow-dyed pasta made with Italian wheat, real extra virgin olive oil from local olive varieties, aged traditional balsamic vinegar of Modena, and a bright green Sicilian pesto spread that I can literally not keep in my apartment. All of these things are available on Gustiamo's website, giving everyone access to the sort of things that usually only the best chefs can get their hands on. In addition to bringing the best of Italy to the U.S., Gusiamo is doing big picture work to support Italian food traditions, fight food fraud, and advocate for honest Italian farmers and artisans who make their living growing and making food on a small scale, reinforcing the importance of diversity in agriculture. Check out more at Gustiamo.com. That's G-U-S-T-I-A-M-O.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.